0: You are live with Get Connected, Mike Agarbo here in studio. I've got uh, my guest co-host today. His name is Carmi Levy out of uh, Toronto. Thanks uh, for joining us.
1: Oh, great to be with you, Mike. Thanks for having me on.
0: Get Connected, Canada's number one tech radio program. And we've got a really interesting show. We're going to be talking with the folks over at Amazon Web Services about uh, their digital skills courses. Uh, The future is cloud computing and AI. Well, they've got courses to teach you all about that so that you can get some of those sweet juicy jobs. Uh we will also uh, be chatting about uh, Apple and Microsoft. Uh, they're fighting to stay off the European Union's gatekeeper list. What is that? Why is that important? Well, you're going to have to stick around to uh, find out. Uh and we'll uh, also be uh, looking into the video game actors strike. Uh, they're going on strike as well, joining their brothers and sisters from the film and television industry and also the writers. So we'll uh uh, dive into the implications uh, of it. Uh, but uh, let's get into some of the news, uh, Carmine. I think the big news story this week would uh, be Huawei. They've just released a, a new phone. Uh, I think it's the P60, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And uh, the U.S. is losing its mind. <laughs> they, yeah, uh... <laughs> I mean, it,
1: if you think iPhones are a big deal here, uh, though, it's, it's known as the, Wa- the Huawei Mate 60 Pro, and it is probably even bigger than an iPhone in China right now. Everyone is losing their mind over it because of what is powering it. The chip that's powering it is known as the Kirin 9000S. It's developed by a company called Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corp., SMIC, a Chinese state-owned chip maker. And, and the deal there is, is that because... The U.S. has had sanctions against China that chip makers are not allowed to sell their 5G chips to Chinese companies. This goes back to 2019. So China has been using stockpiles. Huawei has had 5G phones up until now, but they basically used 5G chips that they had already bought sitting on a shelf. And there are only so many of them that they've developed their own and are putting it into their own indigenous phones is a huge deal. It means that China has seemingly successfully circumvented the Western sanctions against it, uh, against it, accessing high technology 5G next generation chips. This is big. Uh, and, and so they're going wild for it in China. And it's also causing a lot of consternation outside of China because it means we
0: had sanctions in place. Clearly, they found a way around them. Were you surprised, though? I mean, the Chinese technology industry, they're, they're pretty smart. Like, I've, I've they, been over there. Are. I've seen their factories. They're, they're amazing. I, I, I thought it was only a matter of time before they figured that out themselves.
1: I think you're absolutely right because this is what China does particularly well they gain access to foreign technology and first they'll use it in its existing form for example with uh, with Russian fighter jets originally they bought the Russian fighter jets and then they figured out how to uh, manufacture them under license and then they dug into the intellectual property and and came up with better designs on their own you know locally sourced designs and then rather than using Russian jet engines, they figured out how to build the engines on their own. So there's there's history there uh, that China gradually builds its industrial capacity based on first obtaining the actual product from a foreign supplier, then using that intellectual property to train itself to do it on its own and then improve on the original. So they've done it in aviation, they've done it in other sectors, now they're doing it in computing, specifically as it applies to not only making smartphones, but more importantly, the 5G chips and the chipsets that power them, which is a, a significant milestone in China's ability to essentially create its own 5G market
0: without having to rely on foreign suppliers. Should we be concerned, like regular people? Should we care?
1: Uh, yeah, no. Uh, I mean, yeah, of course, I, from a geopolitical perspective, I, I'm I'm, a, I'm an observer of geopolitics, uh, you know, did poli-sci in university as well as journalism. So I have a particular interest in it. It doesn't directly threaten you and me, uh, but certainly we know China's intentions uh, on the global scale, and we know that the more capability they have, uh, from a technological perspective, the better able they are to pursue those intentions. So, you know, is it, worries to saying if I'm in America, does it mean that China is better um, at using its, its electronics production capacity to do things we may not necessarily want them to do? Yeah, there's probably more risk there in much the same way that I worry about Iran's ability to make, you know, its own technology uh, and perhaps use it for aims that are a little bit less than peaceful. Uh, so is the potential there with China? Absolutely. We know very clearly what it wants to do both in its neighborhood and beyond it wants to project global power this allows it to do so uh, with with greater ease so yes it's worrisome but at the same time it's no surprise given what china has telegraphed what it wants to do over the past 10 20 30 years Uh, this just means they've achieved another milestone in that long-term trend
0: yeah i i gotta be honest i thought they would have figured it out sooner (laughs) do you know what i mean (laughs) like I, I, you, you think they would have, but I, I think that illustrates just the difficulty of chip
1: making. Uh, that it is, it is probably one of the most uh, difficult uh, uh, puzzles to crack in the technology industry. That you know, very few countries have an industrial base that's sophisticated enough to manufacture these kinds of chips at scale. Especially as the the uh, the, the process that is used to create them gets smaller and smaller. So for example, um, up until now, uh, the, the most sophisticated chip that SMIC was able to produce was based on what's known as 14 nanometer process, which is the size of the individual transistors on that chip. The smaller they are, the faster they operate, the more heat efficient they are, the better the battery life on them. So smaller is better. Uh, Now, apparently this chip that is inside this new uh, uh, Mate 60 Pro, uh, it is a 7 nanometer chip, which means that China now has the ability to make chips on its own at a much smaller process size, which is a huge deal in technology. It means they're much more sophisticated than we thought they were. It also illustrates just how difficult it is to get to that point. You don't just wake up one day and decide, "I'm going to make small, you know, small, incredibly efficient and powerful chips." It takes years to build up to that industrial capability.
0: We're talking about Huawei. They've released a a new phone that uh, has a a Chinese-made 5G chip in it. Uh, U.S. uh, government and lawmakers are losing their minds (laughs) right now. Uh, And we'll be following up on this story in uh, days and weeks uh, to come. We've got a great program coming up. Uh, If you're looking to up your digital skills, well, we've uh, got Amazon Web Services on. They've got a number of different courses you can take uh, in the cloud computing realm and also learning uh, AI and machine learning. Learning, uh, as well uh, that can also tra- uh, translate uh, into uh, college uh, courses uh, that they're uh, working with so uh, you should stay tuned for that uh, those are some pretty sweet paying jobs you are tuned in to get connected with mike agarbone and uh, Carmi levy today we'll be back shortly after this you are back with get connected mike agarbone here in studio uh, it's back to school time back to work and uh, what a better time to learn some new skills, some digital skills. We have a great guest with us today. Her name is Coral Kennett from AWS. That's Amazon Web Services. Uh, Thanks for uh, joining us on the program.
2: Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here.
0: I love having you guys uh, on the show. You've uh, got a great uh, collection of uh, different types of courses and things that people can take to build up uh, their digital skills. And let's just start with that. What are digital skills? That's a really broad term.
2: It is the broad term uh and really people might think about things like programming or coding uh the you know coding programs but it's more broad than that it is things like uh, machine learning services artificial intelligence um, tools that we have and for us at aws it's cloud computing skills which is again quite broad and people may be familiar with some of the cloud computing services that we offer because they Power a lot of the things that they use every day, like Amazon.ca or Netflix and and a lot of the things that people use in their everyday lives. So it's really all of the things that are uh, running all of those types of tools that they use.
0: And the jobs in these fields are are pretty, uh, pretty lucrative, aren't they?
2: They absolutely can be, yes. So um, a lot of the studies are showing that people that have these types of skills, and you know, for example, AI skills, they can earn more than hundred thousand uh, dollars more than their peers um, just by having these skills.
0: And you know, I, I guess uh, you know, for some of the listeners here, it's kind of intimidating when we're talking about machine learning and, and cloud skills. Like, what kind of skill level would people have to have to start getting into this?
2: It can be intimidating when people aren't as familiar with some of these things to start out with, but really, The types of training programs that we have are for anyone. So it can be for someone who does come from a traditional IT background, who's looking to upskill and get more technical competency in these types of areas. But really, if you have no experience with machine learning or artificial intelligence, we have a lot of different programs that can really start to introduce you to these types of concepts and allow you to play with them in a a fun way and really get some hands-on experience
0: when we're talking about AI and uh, machine learning you guys have all sorts of different uh programs uh, and stuff that we've covered before. I, one of one of my favorites was that uh, the Deep Racer program uh, you have where people can actually learn to uh program a uh, a car both a, a virtual and a, a physical uh little model as well.
2: Deep Racer is one of my favorite programs um just for that reason it it gives you a really tangible way to start to learn machine learning skills and techniques. Um, so it is something that you can do virtually. You can you can sign up and go on and start to train some models. Um, we use reinforcement training for that and it, it allows you to get some hands-on experience doing that. And if it's something that you start to want to do a little bit more, we have live deep Racer. Uh, leagues that run all over the country where you can come and actually race actual small little cars um, around the track uh, using the models that you have developed uh, using the program.
0: There's uh, one um, course uh, that I I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, It's called Deep Lens. Explain what that is and and the use case for that because I I I thought it was pretty funny.
2: Deep Lens is is a great example of how you can start to find ways to apply machine learning to your own life. So, Uh, It it teaches you the basics of machine learning using a wireless video camera, and we had one uh, learner who decided to take this and build their own machine learning um, algorithm because they had their cat bringing uh, mice into the house. So they put this camera uh, by, by the door and programmed it that the lens the camera would know when the cat had a mouse and it wouldn't open the door so I thought that was a really interesting use case where someone had applied machine learning to their own life Um, so those are the types of things that once you get access to these skills you can really start to think about how could this help me in my own uh, in my own day-to-day life
0: oh my god I would have loved to uh, had the ability to program something like that back in the day we had a cat that was bringing all sorts of crazy stuff in. And so, uh, the, the, you know, I said, let's get a cat door so I don't have to let the cat in and out, but the family's like, no, cause it'll keep bringing in mice and, and other things. So, um, now's the time, I guess, <laughs> to, to, to learn something like that. Absolutely. Uh, um, there's another, uh, set, uh, called cloud quests. Uh, what is that all about?
2: CloudQuest is a really fun one. It's a, it's a game that you can go in and play and you're learning cloud computing skills as you go through the program. So uh, it, you, you can you know, make friends, you can get pets, solve puzzles. And while you're doing this, you're gaining cloud skills along the way in in a way that's very fun. Um,
0: and so what kind of cost is involved uh, with, uh, with these programs?
2: So these are all free programs, the ones that we've just discussed. So CloudQuest and AWS DeepRacer. We also have another program called Skill Builder that gives you access to over 600 courses. And many of them are at no cost. So you can go in and you can start using them and getting some experience and and, um, do all of this on your own time at your own schedule for for no cost. Um, And as you go along, if it's something that you want to do more formally, we partner with Academic institutions. Um, We have several partners all around uh, the the Lower Mainland and all over British Columbia that are offering programs where you can go and actually take a course and get some uh, experience with these types of digital skills through your local academic institutions.
0: So uh, it it could be a combination. Uh, It could be virtual and you could actually go to uh, like a physical school as well to kind of go to the next level or level up, I guess.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what we're really trying to do is make these skills as accessible as possible for as many people as possible. So, you know, it's, you know, we're talking about back to school, we're talking about, you know, the kids and and getting them hands-on learning, but it's also for adults. And really, we want to make sure that we're providing opportunities for all types of learners to access these types of skills and these types of programs for whatever works for them. So if you're somebody who really likes to you know, work on your own and do things virtually and and work through at your own time. We have lots of options for that through Skill Builder and some of these other programs. Or if you're someone who really prefers the uh, in-class experience with an instructor and other students learning alongside you, we have lots of options for that as well.
0: Uh, Would that be something, uh, maybe explain what micro-credentials are?
2: So micro-credentials are where you are earning uh, your skills along the way and you're getting Um, your credential for a a piece of content. So it's not necessarily taking a full course. Um, So people think about going back to school as, you know, signing on for a full semester or even um, several years of programming. With micro-credentialing, you can go to your institution, maybe find courses that run for two weeks, maybe it runs for 10 weeks, whatever the different options are, and you can actually get a certification at the end of that. But it's really giving you the option to gain um, those skills and gain that recognition along the way without having to commit to, perhaps you know potentially multi-year program
0: yeah and again when it comes to uh, things like AI and machine learning I I know a lot of people um, you know are are maybe scared of that but uh, you know what I've been trying to say is that uh, you know these are tools uh, that uh, you know you can can use to uh, enhance your life uh, or or your job uh, as well and something that uh, I really think people should embrace
2: I totally agree with you. And I I do see this as being a a tool that you can use and really people have been using these tools maybe not even knowing that they've been using them so i gave the example earlier of amazon.ca most people are are familiar with the platform and when you go on there and and you're searching for something and then you'll see that it says you know perhaps you'd be interested in in these types of products as well you know those are our machine learning and artificial intelligence services that are working in the background to power those recommendations based on your preferences and so it's something that you know most people are pretty familiar with that. Or again, with Netflix, the other example that I used, when you have watched a show and then it it comes up and says, you know, you may be interested in these other shows. Again, those are our machine learning and artificial intelligence services working in the background along with our data services to really make sure that we're presenting a curated list that meets your needs. Um, and, and those are the type of use cases that people can start to think about in their own lives. How can I start to think about how I might use machine learning myself and make use of this. Um, you know, we we have lots of different ways that people are, are doing this and, um, you know, really coming up with really interesting ways to use machine learning once they start to get access to these tools.
0: And uh, from what I understand, like, uh, there are some companies out there that uh, offer uh, their employees uh, these courses uh, as well.
2: We're finding this is happening quite a bit. So employers are um, supportive of their employees upping their digital skills and, and increasing their technical competency. So there are a lot of programs that are available and we encourage people to to ask their employers. Um, you know, we're working with some companies uh really closely, such as BMO and Sun Life, where we're offering customized courses for their employees. Other employers have um, programs where you can go and get upskilled and and maybe get some time or financial support to do that. Um, So it is something that we definitely encourage you to do and ask your employer about.
0: It's uh, Coral Kennett from Amazon Web Services talking about all sorts of courses and digital skills uh, that uh, you can uh, take and learn to uh, up your game. Where can people find out more information, Coral?
2: They can go to skillbuilder.aws where they will find all of the different options that we have um, and they can search for whatever uh, area of interest is, is most interesting to them.
0: Thanks again for joining us.
2: Thanks so much, Mike.
0: When we come back from the break, more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You are back with the program. Mike here for Get Connected. i got Carmi Levy with me today. Uh, I think a lot of people are aware of the writers and actors strike happening right now in uh, North America. Um, But it looks like video game actors are going to go on strike uh, as well. Uh, It looks like the big studios have taken uh, a bit of a hit over the past year. I think Warner Brothers Discovery said they're going to take up to a half a billion dollars in lost revenue. Uh, alone, which is pretty significant, Carmi.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm not going to hold a garage sale for any of these studios at this point. I mean, I think they've they've made their own bed, uh, and they're getting what they rightfully deserve at this point. They tried to offer a contract both to writers as well as actors that had some pretty, I mean, among other things, it had some pretty egregious demands about artificial intelligence that essentially would have opened the door to taking uh, a a writer's or an actor's work and allowing the studio to essentially replicate it using artificial intelligence without properly compensating the original creator of that work so essentially what it would mean from the perspective of a a writer or actor is you would have far less opportunity to pursue your career because the studios had essentially gained the system by opening the door to use ai without any limitations now the same thing is they're they're trying to do the same thing with video game actors and as we know in the video game industry voice work and motion capture work are in significantly greater demand than in any other space. And that's where the studios, especially the game producers, want to use uh, artificial intelligence as a way of replicating that work, reducing the need to hire on human voice actors and motion cap specialists. So the problem here is, is now you have SAG-AFTRA, which is the the board that represents these creators. They're now saying, we're going to open up a third front. We are, we're, you know, we're going to tell our membership as we negotiate with the studio that if we don't get what they want or what we want, and if we don't get the same protections that we're seeking with the other two actions, uh, we want authorization for a strike as well. And so I think this this broadens the the fight that has been raging for the past number of months. And you know, and so too bad, you know, Warner's going to lose a, a, a giant pile of money. They frankly should have been a little bit more realistic about their AI-based demands in the first place, and shouldn't have tried sliding that thing in under the door, hoping that nobody would notice. Yes, people would notice. And unfortunately, uh, we are now having probably the most significant debate over the future of AI in creative industries uh, that we possibly could have had. There will be casualties. Studios will be hurt. But you know what? It's a hurt of their own making.
0: Well, I don't think people realize how big the video game industry is. Isn't it bigger than the film industry right now? actually bigger than the film
1: and music industries combined so you know this is not uh gaming from 30 years ago this is not teenage boys playing in mom and dad's basement gaming is uh, all ages all demographics it is, it is a universal um a form of entertainment uh, and it's big business it isn't just buying single games it's subscribing to them it's being part of diverse online communities all of which generate huge revenues for the studios and so um you know if we thought that the writers and actors strike was uh was notable uh this is going to make an even bigger bang and sag aftra uh under uh the direction of their
0: president fran drescher
1: who we might remember as the nanny um i still have yes. a
0: hard, i still have a hard time with that one
1: <laughs> absolutely but but boy what a second act i know she's killing it Oh, I love it. And, you know, more power to or SAG-AFTRA is essentially saying um, no, uh, we're going to stop here and we're going to be that line in the sand, not just for creative industries, but all industries uh, as well. In other words, so goes entertainment and so goes healthcare, So goes uh, the financial industry. So goes government employees, every industry that tries to include AI related terminology in their contracts. This, what is happening now with the actors and the writers and now the video game producers is going to uh, set a precedent uh, for every other contract, labor contract that is signed in the years to come. So definitely want to keep a close eye on what happens here. And I'm glad that there is, you know, again, no matter how we all feel about a union, whether we're pro or not doesn't matter. I think we all have an interest in ensuring that this issue is debated and at least arrived at a a compromise that is fair to everyone because if not, the potential for abuse by large players is almost limitless.
0: Are they fighting a futile battle? Like, the future I think in many ways is tied into AI. Mm -hmm. You're seeing a lot of analysts say that yes, there's going to be a major loss of jobs over the next decade. Some are estimating over 300 million full-time jobs uh, around the world in, in all industries. Uh, but we're going through a you know a revolution, an evolution in change. You know, we had the industrial revolution, we had the computing revolution. This is kind of a, another one. So yes, there's going to be a lot of job loss, but you know, obviously, new opportunities. Are, are they fighting a fight they can win? Um,
1: you know, the the, the I think we all agree that technology is by its very nature disruptive. That's what new technologies do. Uh, they come into an existing space and they upset the apple cart. They shake things up. Uh, they make th- they make behaviors obsolete and they take entire categories of jobs and they render them to the dustbin of history. So I, to a certain extent it is futile. You can't fight change, you can't fight technology. What you can however do is put frameworks around the appropriate use of new technology Technologies that at least allow those who are in a particular sector to gracefully transition out of one and into the next, Um, and so to not allow the kinds of rank abuses that we have seen associated with previous transitions from older technology to new. Um, And so, this may not save video game actors' jobs. This may not save the voiceover industry. Um, But what it will do is it will preserve those 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 creative roles just long enough so that alternatives can be created. In other words, AI will destroy some, but at least we're giving the industry enough time to see how AI can create new opportunities that these skilled individuals can then move into. I think also as a consumer of content, so I go to movies, I buy music, I play video games, um, you know, and 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 uh, and I read books, and I, you know, I'm, I consume all of the content that comes out of these processes. I think we as human beings have an interest in consuming creative content that was created by other human beings. The last thing I want to be doing is walking into a bookstore, standing looking at a shelf of books that were all cranked out by artificial intelligence. At some point, you want to be connected to those who created the content for you Um, and i think we have to look in the mirror as well and ask ourselves when we go to the movies who do we want to see do we want to see a computer or do we want to see you know harrison ford or Kristen bell or whoever Um, i want to see a human and i want to have that connection to them and certainly artificial intelligence is not going to offer that up at least not at this point
0: the technology is just advancing so quickly i I recently saw the new indiana jones movie where they de-aged harrison ford and it was it was amazing and so you can see that we are very close to them completely recreating actors that we Absolutely. know that we and know like completely yeah. ai generated and and i don't
1: doubt that and i don't doubt that that's it's amazing to to see and it's amazing what we can do today that we simply could not do a few short years ago but again you know when i see a de-aged Harrison Ford or a recreated James Earl Jones who has allowed his voice to be saved for future use by ai based technologies he sold the rights to it and we're seeing more artists start to do that uh, the question then becomes is that really what we want to see in other words do i want to see a de-aged harrison ford do i want to see a tom cruise um, you know who has been uh you know reversed in in you know chronology uh, and is that something that i really want to pay for to see at the movie theater or is it re- is it representative of reality it's the same argument that's been raging since the beginning of of Photoshop, when when photo editing tools came along, the question became, yeah, the result looks technically perfect, but is it a photograph? Is it a representative? If, is it a representation of the artistic vision of the artist? Um, does it represent what they saw and felt at the moment that they tripped the shutter? Uh, the short answer is no. It's another creation. It's another form of art, but certainly not the original one. So I think we have to, and again, there's no right or wrong here. It's not that I'm saying we shouldn't be using artificial intelligence, but we really should understand how it changes both the creation of creative content and the consumption of it going forward because if we don't we're going to go to the movies and maybe we aren't going to have that feeling of joy that we currently do when we eat that popcorn and you know, you know watch harrison ford do his thing A d-aged harrison ford i'm not so sure i'd want to be eating the popcorn in that theater
0: I didn't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you, you are a better movie goer than I. So, you know, obviously the, the video game uh, folks, um, you know, the actors there, they're obviously trying to, you know, put strength in numbers with the film and TV actors and the writers. Mm-hmm. Do they have as much power or more because the industry's bigger? Are they more, you know, uh, are they more or less high profile than like a Brad Pitt?
1: Uh, I think they are, simply because their work, even though an individual voice actor or an individual motion capture actor uh, is not known as well as a Brad Pitt or a Harrison Ford, collectively, their work touches us across the board. Every commercial that we see, every television show or movie that we go to, they're in the background, too. They're just as integral to these productions, uh, both digital and, uh, and in the analog world, as the name brand actors are and the name brand creators and so I think by pooling their resources across the board I think they send a message that it isn't just in a movie theater and if you even if you stop going to movies because you don't care about what's happening on that picket line well guess what it's going to touch you on the stuff that you watch on YouTube it's going to touch you on the things that you see on TV or uh, now that September has rolled around the things that we aren't going to see on TV so I think this works to the union's advantage Um, and again uh, you know it it this is being watched by by workers in every other sector uh, because even in a non-unionized sector uh, you know when the wording of a contract or a standard contract if it includes unfair AI clauses that puts all of us at risk um, but a positive outcome from this particular fight this expanding fight means that you and I when we go looking for a job in future we'll have that much more protection from this kind of abusive behavior where you know things get slipped into a contract without us even knowing so i think this is more important than just the entertainment industry and we all have an interest in ensuring that at least somebody is fighting for fairness
0: we're gonna have to take a break when we come back we're gonna talk about some new european union legislation that could dramatically affect big tech that would be amazon apple google and meta which owns uh, facebook it's uh Something about gatekeepers, these large tech giants, and uh, how they control a lot of the, uh, I guess, the messaging and what have you that uh, they use over there and and here as well. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with Carmi Levy. I'm going to talk about the uh, EU now, the European Union. Uh, in many ways, they are really kind of leading the way when it comes to Uh, reining in big tech, uh, making sure that their citizens' uh, data and privacy is protected. Uh, And what they do typically then trickles down to us over the pond in the United States and Canada. So there's uh, a new act that I don't think a lot of people are aware of uh, over here, the EU Digital Markets uh, Act. I don't know how new it is, but uh, they've got a list of gatekeepers. Maybe start with the the DMA, the Digital Markets Act, and uh, explain in layman's terms what that is.
1: Well basically there it, it it tells tech companies that they can no longer behave like monopolies, that they can't create so called walled gardens, you know, and the perfect example of that is you have an iPhone, it uses iMessage on it. And so as a result, if you don't have an iPhone, you can't access that. You can't access all the features on it. You have the dreaded green uh, uh, you know, uh, text bubble, not the blue one. Um, and so essentially what Apple does is it uses its size to create a, a market advantage over people who don't have Apple products and to push non-Apple competitors off the market. Same thing with operating systems. Microsoft, the bundling browsers with Windows to the exclusion of everyone everything else Google making it so that uh, their search engine was dominant across all of its platforms making it impossible to maybe use another search engine across uh, some of its other tools um, and so what the digital markets act does is it identifies some major technology companies like alphabet which owns Google Amazon Apple meta Microsoft and it calls them gatekeepers basically these companies have become so big that they can behave in a way that damages not just competitors but you and me because it gives us less choice. It means things are harder to use, more expensive, harder to get. Um, and so what they've done is they've under the Digital Markets Act, they've identified these companies and they've said, you know, you need to, you know, as we further develop the this, this legislation, you're going to have to behave in a proper way. In other words, uh, if you are a, a messaging app, you're going to have to make yourself what's called interoperable with competitors. If you're an operating system, you're going to have to make it easy for third party app stores to set up shop on your platform. You're going to have to allow developers to maybe offer up payment opportunities, not just through your payment system, but some other one. Um, You should be able to uninstall pre-installed apps. You should be able to change things like virtual assistants and and web browsers, and they shouldn't make it hard for you. And so Essentially, it'll make them behave in a way that is fairer to consumers and and less anti-competitive, which is long overdue because, as we know, through the, the history of the technology industry, that's how big companies have behaved. They've essentially busted competition uh, and treated us all, all of us users, millions of users like pawns. Uh, and the Digital Markets Act, which is, again, another piece of progressive legislation from the EU, uh, is designed to finally break that And for companies that don't play ball, they could be fined up to 10 percent of their total worldwide revenue uh, or as much as 20 percent if they repeat offenders. And in some cases, the EU could force them to sell off parts of themselves, structurally change themselves if they refuse to change for the better. So they mean business. And the DMA is a pretty significant shift uh, in the way governments deal with big technology companies and uh, a long overdue and welcome one.
0: Well, they've designated these tech companies that have, um, I think, over 45 million uh, users uh, on, a, on a monthly basis as uh, gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Apple and uh, Microsoft and their Bing search engine are arguing that they don't meet that threshold. Uh, I think uh, the EU is trying to lump Apple and Microsoft and all their associated products in uh, in this, uh, I guess, legislation. But Apple's arguing that they don't have 45 million iMessage users. And Bing says they have a very small, or Microsoft says Bing has a very small percentage of the the search market and shouldn't be included in this either.
1: Yeah, you know, if you're going to lose the argument, you go and you grasp at straws. You know, Apple and Microsoft, you say tomato, I say tomato. Um, they're going to argue where the threshold needs to be because the real issue isn't how how big or small that number is, but the real issue is how they behave. Um, and so they're kind of hoping that this each one of them squeaks in under the wire. But the reality is, uh, at some point, the Digital Markets Act will not only apply to large companies, it'll apply to smaller ones as well or who fall under that threshold. Forty-five million monthly active user number. It's just a number uh, and frankly, every company no matter how large or small should be be, uh, forced to behave in a way that is consumer friendly. They'll they'll start with the giants because that's where the most benefit is, but at the end of the day, for Apple and Microsoft to argue that, well, they're not large enough in these particular markets, so they don't qualify, it's kind of laughable and it's probably not going to stand the test of time. It will apply to them whether they like it or not.
0: It's interesting with Apple, uh, you know, iPhone is a big driver for them, uh, not just from a hardware perspective, but just all the services uh, that uh, they make uh, a lot of uh, money on. But what are your thoughts uh, if they are forced to comply and make iMessage more compatible with Google Android messaging so that Google, Google Android uh, users can get little blue text bubbles uh, as well? Do you think they would implement that over in North America or around the world? Or would they just try to isolate that in in europe
1: I think technically it would be very difficult to have one standard, like an interoperable standard in Europe and another one elsewhere. What happens if you are, uh, you know, a a North American user who travels to Europe on business? What happens if you regularly interact with friends, family members and colleagues across oceans? Um, It's the same thing. You know, Apple has been forced by the EU to uh, replace its lightning connectors on its devices with USB connectors, and that is going to become a global thing, regardless of whether Apple likes it or not, because it's just impossible to have one standard for Europe and one standard for the rest of the world. So, I see this becoming global, uh, even though the legislation only applies within Europe. And I think that's a good thing. The EU has always been uh, a leader in terms of bringing this legislation like this to to, to market or to, to light. And then technology companies, which are global by definition, will then follow suit on a global basis. It's good for all of us. Um, and ultimately, it means that the rest of the world follows a consistent standard. I think the good news for Apple here also is even though they potentially have the most to lose because their walled gardens are the biggest of the big. Uh, they are the world's largest technology company and much as you as you referred to when you introduced this segment, um, many of the services they sell are based on the hardware that they sell and their services business is the fastest growing component of their business. So the, the risk here with Apple is that, yeah, they, they could lose what differentiates them on iMessage, but this is a company that has never been short of, of, of innovative capabilities. So if, if you lose your your competitive advantage in one area, than just find other ways to innovate elsewhere throughout your product line or introduce entirely new products and services that create new forms of differentiation and value. Uh, this is how Apple has always survived and thrived. They do it better than everyone else and Apple needs to recognize that and not hold on to the standards of the past.
0: Carmi, I want to thank you for joining us on the program as always. Uh, I want to throw to our, our app show, which is on every Sunday on the Chorus Radio Network. We've got a great program. I think you'll be joining me again, Carmi. We're going to talk about uh, Trump, And his uh, Georgia election interference trial will be live streamed. We'll tell you what that all means. Uh, Also, Google Meets and their AI can actually do meetings for you. What is that uh, all about? And finally, Facebook and Instagram might add paid ad-free plans in the EU. Look at that. The European Union once again coming into our tech stories. That's all the time we have left. Mike and Carmi logging off. We'll see you again next time.